Hello and welcome to another edition of Spotlight, the Star Trek podcast from a non-tracky perspective. I'm Liam Dempsey and I'm joined by my usual co-host, Paul Wilson-Morris. Hello, Spotlighters. We are not joined by Matt today as he is scum. <laughs> but also, I say that? <laughs> uh, but also because unfortunately he's unwell, but he has told me his secret thoughts about Star Trek. Which we are going to be talking about today. No. There's no purpose here. How did a ship get inside here? The more important question how do we get it out? Join us. You always wanted to see the stars. On behalf of Starfleet, welcome aboard. Uh, what is that? Have you ever even flown a ship before? No. Does it show? Disabling gravity. Okay. We get to go there and explore. This ought to be good. We are fighting now. No one shall escape. Get me my ship. There goes our exit. We're so dead. Why, it's pew, 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 but I don't see a pew, 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 but just hit them all until it goes pew, pew. Woo! We got phasers, baby. I've seen my share of wayward crews, and I can tell you this, you've got potential. Star Trek Prodigy, it's on Nickelodeon, so I mean, you know, that is, that is the home of children's entertainment, yeah, is Rock it Rats, not, in, in America? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this aired back in 2021 now, uh, or began to air on the 28th of October uh, 2021, and I think this first half of season one ended on the 3rd of February this year uh, so it stretched over October to February so like I said this is season one part one I didn't actually realize this until we'd all set up this recording <laughs> that this was only actually first half of season one I don't really get it because I'm like there's like almost like a fucking year gap between part one and part two. I'm like, just make it season two. Also, for Star Trek shows this season, they never get anywhere near like the usual 26. Yeah, exactly. Order. Like, this is 10 20. episodes. And like 20 yeah. season. This is not odd. Exactly. I, I don't really get this thing. I, I kind of think if you've got this big a gap between episodes, that's just another just, season. It's just another season. Exactly. It's not like earlier this year they did the final season of Back Call Saul. <laughs> Yeah. And they put part one of season six out, and then six weeks later or something, they put mm. out part two of season six. Oh. That's fine. Yeah. That's fine. Like, yeah. little little break, little some holiday break. <laughs> that's, that, that's no problem. Like, kids have gone off to school. I just remember your face when he was like, Soprano, season six, part one, you know, and they had to take part two, maybe wait. And <laughs> oh, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was a year. Was that was funny. a year. massive wait for those last yeah. few. Yeah. yeah. What's was... funny is that I have like, a ready-to-go animation inside baseball reason 
why that happened, but you need to introduce me first. Yeah, Because oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like Roger oh, Rabbit, God. like shaking. Well, I suppose we now need to introduce our very special guest, <laughs> David Chumble, the most recurring guest on the podcast ever. He's back. <laughs> so recurring, I never left. I've <laughs> been yeah. hiding in the floorboards this whole time. <laughs> uh, he's been pulling a Black Christmas on us. He is here. David Chumble, welcome back to the podcast. <laughs> Our resident animation expert. So you're going to tell us why this phenomena of being split in two while Paul desperately tries to drink some of his scrumpy jack ciders, spiding all over. I'm so happy you asked. Um, no, uh, the, the funny thing is, it's 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 great to be here and to finally be talking to you guys about an animation to do with Star Trek. You know, like all this time I've been working, like I, I think from the first time I ever did the morality of Trek with you guys, I was first starting out on my journey of working in animation. And so now to have a bunch of, you know, credits to my name and stuff like that. And, and like, it, it, it feels like such a strange thing that the world of Star Trek hasn't gotten behind animation sooner. It feels like, crazy considering the amount of potential that ip has technically they did do animation first yeah but if if you want to call many cells that don't move animation yeah, yeah. you know i mean the bare minimum of cost cutting well, animated yeah. it was like uh, chris marker's yeah. star trek yeah exactly yeah i mean it was yeah closer to yeah uh captain pugwash to star trek than uh anything else back in the day the 1973 to 1974 but there was like over mid 90s you know Nickelodeon could have gone on the game when it's got you got generations yeah. coming out yeah, voyager yeah, back to the release deep space yeah, yeah. nine and star trek next generation just finished it's like there was a the perfect time to just go i mean i truly feel like have yeah. five shows I truly feel it's an untapped resource. And so that's why I was so delighted when mm. I realized that like, if you told me a couple of years ago that there would not only be like a saturation point of lots of Star Trek all across our screens in different different shows and different spinoffs, but not only that, but there would be two animated shows that are completely different mm -hmm. and really maximizing the, the versatility of the medium, you know, because animation's uh, as is commonly, you know, uh, rebutted now by you know, the likes of Guillermo del Toro and stuff like that. Like animation gets often reduced to being considered a genre, like specifically a, a children's genre, whereas in fact it's incredibly broad in what it is. It, it's basically whatever story you want to tell in whatever style you want to tell it, and it's not constrained by anything. And you know, if you look at what they've been doing in the Kurtzman Trek. You've got like the adult Star Trek in Lower Decks, and then you've got this, which is geared very much for children. Did we just forget to say Lower Decks actually was the first sort of second? Well, the second. No, 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 because I was saying children's. Children, animation. yes. Lower Decks okay. is officially uh, an adult yeah. animation. Yes, like, so you they, cut their arm it, off in the I first mean, series. you know, it's one of those yeah. things where I wouldn't say in general. The lower decks is particularly adult, but it is it has got that that kind of tag mm. because I mean if you look at like an episode like with the dreadful badgie uh, <laughs> like you know where there's literally like blood and blood and guts all over the yeah. screen I mean, and literally, that a bunch episode, of f bombs you know what yeah, I mean? yeah, like, yeah it's it, post watershed are, are there f bombs yeah. in in lower decks or do they beep them out don't they beep them out. No, I don't believe they do. I think it doesn't matter actually because you know they say one bleeped use of f word 
I mean, you wouldn't, like, yeah, you yeah. wouldn't watch Play Days and it would have bleeped out, <laughs> <laughs> would you? Yeah. Like, we wouldn't watch, what is it that we were watching with your son, the Octonauts? They just say, shit, a whiskers. But Dave, you were going to tell us yeah. why this has been split in two and there's those <laughs> Yeah, I've set myself up as the I think I've, I think I've got, yeah. I, think I've, I think I might know, to be fair, but yeah. you, you tell me. Well, I mean, like, I also want to say for the record that I'm not involved in Star Trek Prodigy or, or I haven't worked with anyone over at Nickelodeon. I know one person who works in post-production on Lodex, but that's about it. Mostly I've been working in Netflix animation. But um, I suspect the reason is because of the streaming format. Um, the way animation has worked in my experience in Netflix is that whenever people see, oh, this series has been greenlit for a second season and they make the announcement, everyone's really happy because it means that must have meant that the show did well and that the, the, uh, Netflix are listening to their, to their algorithm. However, the, the fact of it usually is that the studio or the company has committed to a certain number of episodes and then they release it staggered. So, um, you know, you have something in, on Netflix like The Cuphead Show, which had two seasons, Centaur World that had two seasons. They made all of those two seasons in one big chunk, one big block, and then they released them over uh, a couple of different months. And so in animation, they tend to commit to a certain amount and then, and then retroactively sort of like drip feed it across. And with uh, Prodigy, I do believe that the deal for that show was 20 episodes. So two seasons of 10, and then the writers separated those two seasons into like two chunks. Like, a, like a, there's like a midpoint to each one. But that means you get basically what amounts to about four seasons of 10 episodes that are spaced out over maybe like nine months between them stuff. Right, okay. Because I've noticed that with a lot of animations, not even just kids ones, but like adult ones as well, that they do that. They do it on Netflix all the time. They did it with Disenchantment, the yeah. Matt Groening yeah. uh, show. They did it with the He-Man show yeah. where they went, oh, it's part one yeah. and released some episodes and then went, oh, it's part two. Like, I think, like, you know, rather than going season one, season two or season they're just like literally, oh, we're dropping some episodes and that's part one. Like, you know, it's, which just seems to be, yeah, the way animation is going. But yeah, like you say, uh, Dave, you are a resident animation expert because you do work in the world of animation and you're literally showing that right now by wearing your Wendell Wild crew hoodie, uh, Henry Selleck's new film, uh, which will, by the time this episode goes out, will be available yes, on Netflix from the 28th. Right now, the new stop motion animation produced, I believe, by Jordan Peele. Um, yes, uh, co produced by Monkey Paw Productions. Yeah. Yes, yeah, which you have been working on. Tell us a bit about that. Well, it's it's been really exciting. I can finally talk about something that <laughs> I've been working on because so much of what I do has been NDA protected from the beginning. And this mm. is only probably other than a few uh, uh, freelance jobs on some of the Robert Rodriguez kids movies that he's been doing and with yep. Netflix as well. This is the first time in a very long time that an animated feature of mine has finally debuted. And, you know, people actually are talking about it. And like, you know, I, I was talking to you about it earlier, like the last week, you know, we, we uh, premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival a couple of weeks back. And right now, as we're recording this, it's between the week of the 21st and the 28th where it's having a limited theatre release. So we're actually seeing, like, people online reviewing it. And not just actual reviews, but people who have managed to get tickets to advanced screenings or got, gone to virtual screenings. And that has just been genuinely exciting. Actual real people. Yes. The plebs. The, no, the, the people we made it for, you know, like the people who are excited to see it. And, yeah. and that's been... a 
giddying feeling and incredibly humbling. But also it's like, I was talking to my girlfriend about it because she's in America right now. But I was like, is it possible to like joy scroll and have that be mentally unhealthy for you? <laughs> because I feel a bit like, like weirdly addicted to seeing all of these people because we make so much of these things. You know, anyone who works in animation can tell you this, that we make so much in the dark. I mean, even the fact that you're working on like 20 episodes of a season that's going to be released in chunks. You know what I mean? Like we work for years on these things, hoping that it's going to find an audience. And uh, as I've told you in previous times, I've been on this podcast, you know, like my first movie was Ugly Dolls, which, you know, did not make a big splash. It was an amazing experience. And I learned a lot. That film was actually the reason I got the job on Wendell and Wilde. But uh, without it, I wouldn't have anything. But it's such a, a 180 from the experience of that movie because, because of the fact that it's Henry Selleck's first movie in over 10 years. The fact this is like the director of Coraline, Nightmare Before Christmas. It's stop motion, which is always something that is considered like, you know, a, a real gift every time a stop motion movie comes out because it's the road absolutely least traveled upon in our medium. It's so difficult to do, so painstaking. So even the act of it existing feels like an achievement and, and something that people want to celebrate. Uh, but then just the fact that it's, it's Selleck plus Jordan Peele, who they started working on this movie a few years before uh, Jordan Peele went on to make Get Out. And like, you know, there was actually a funny moment where Jordan Peele was like, we need to pitch this movie right now before uh, Get Out comes out because if what if Get Out's a failure? Like we need to get our funding wow. for Wendell Wild right now. <laughs> to think that there was a moment where Jordan Peele felt insecure about whether or not he could help Henry get Wendell Wild produced. Because mm. a little tiny bit of history about the movie, Henry Selleck created the, the two brothers, the demon brothers of Wendell Wild, based upon his own children, his, his sons. He drew them as a sketch. And, <laughs> and that was like a little pet project that he'd been playing around with, you know, simultaneously to that, it was around the time that he just fell in love with the Key and Peele sketch show. So it was purely uh, Selleck being like, these guys would be perfect for the two Demon Brothers. And his uh, feature, The Shadow King, had been cancelled at Disney due to a bunch of like infighting and and, uh, changing climate and things. And so he approached Peele about it and it just kept getting better because they pitched it to Netflix and then Jordan Peele became a megastar, like in his own right. And so, so just we've been riding on this anticipation that comes not only from fans of stop motion, but also fans of Peel, fans of the horror genre, and just knowing that this is going to be a meeting of minds because Selleck throughout his career has partnered with some incredible uh, voices. Tim Burton on Nightmare Before Christmas, Neil Gaiman on Coraline. Like the one thing people know about uh, Selleck is that he's incredible at collaborating with another distinctive voice. And Selleck also does that in many aspects of his productions. You know, he always gets a different character designer for his films for each one because he never wants the characters to look the same as the last one. So Nightmares often based upon a lot of Tim Burton sketches, you know, and Coraline was a different character designer. And this time we have uh, Pablo Lobato, who's an incredible caricaturist. And tell us what it is you've been doing on this film. Okay, so I've been a story artist on it, which means uh, composing the shots, uh, creating the sequences from the script, read the script, uh, compose. It, 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 the way, that, like the the elevator pitch for being a story artist is that you're basically the whole film crew before they spend any money. You, you pick what the camera angles are, you, you you craft the performance, you draw everything that's going to be in the frame. You you even have to figure out how to edit it because you're figuring out how all the shots flow into each other. You pitch the sequence uh, with these rough boards to the director, and then the director will pick them apart, make notes, add feedback, suggestions. You go away, do it again. You cut it together into an edit, put uh, temporary sound. And 
and, and, and dialogue onto it and things. And then you screen it for, you know, the crew and for the executives. Then they tear it apart. And then you do that over and over and over again until it feels like a good movie, uh, until every single sequence feels like it's working the way it's supposed to. So I always describe it as being kind of like uh, the, the front lines of storytelling in animation. And unlike storyboarding in live action or commercials, which, you know, like uh, um, my twin brother Stephen is also a very gifted storyboard artist and now concept designer on features. But um, the difference with animation is that it's called story artist, not storyboard artist, for the simple fact that you get to really influence what happens into the story. You can add lines of dialogue. There are, there are at least two or three lines in Wendell and Wilde that came from like an idea that I threw into a pitch. And that that's always crazy when you see that. And and um, my crew hoodie, which uh, I'm very proud of wearing right now, is like uh, uh, features a character on the back of it that I won't post anything about until after the movie's out. Uh, but it's a character that you know, through the sequences that I was drawing, I did the first design for. And then Henry being actually really collaborative and loyal with his artists, he was like, actually, once I had left, he was like, we need to design these these shadow characters that show up in a sequence. And David did that really cool sketch. So he just like got me back for like two weeks to come up with a proper sketch for those characters. And now that's the design that you see in the movie. So mm. it's been crazy. Story is, is, is a really uh, fascinating and rewarding part of being an animation because you kind of go from having all of the power over a sequence to having none of the power because it gets taken away from you and edited and, and then, you know, they make all of their changes and decisions. But then when you end up in like uh, the cinema, like, you know, I was very lucky to watch this in Portland at the rap party on a IMAX size screen uh, with the whole crew and Henry just a few weeks ago. And I got to tell you, like just the, ex the sensation of seeing sequences that like, you know, some sequences I've repressed because they were so stressful. It was such a hard shoot or whatever, but like, Every now and again, you'll see a sequence that's almost exactly the way that you boarded it or a moment that you know came directly from something you suggested. And it's the greatest feeling in the world. It's an addictive feeling to know that you're impacting a piece of artwork that's going to hopefully replicate in another person the way you felt when you watched those movies, like when I, how I felt when I watched Nightmare Before Christmas. Do you have any direct contact with the animators themselves? Like I've had some, actually, um, because of the virtue of the fact that it was stop motion. So... Uh, they start animating about halfway through the story process because the story process goes on for quite a while. And um, you start seeing the pipeline begin mm. during the tail end of your job. So for the last few months mm. of the story process, I was lucky enough to be flown to Portland, which is where is like the unofficial capital of stop motion in America. It's where Leica Studios is. It's where Henry made Coraline. It's, it's just a, a like, you know, where some of the best animators in the world work in, and animate in Portland. And so the studios were set up there and it was kind of funny because there's um, there are like all these incredible rooms. It's like basically just this gigantic factory building and inside it are all these black curtains and in each of these little curtained off areas are these incredible sets and models with all these puppets and it's like going through like the most incredible museum of miniature sort of like artwork you'll ever see. And then right next to them is just a bank of different offices. There's like a hair department where people are meticulously making afros out of wire that can be rearranged frame by frame. So they have to be able to be solid, but also bounce around and act like real hair. In another room, there's someone painstakingly stitching a logo into, into a school jacket for like a character that's only a few inches tall. And, and then you also have people painstakingly painting all these 3D printed faces for the face replacements. And, and you geek out majorly. But the other thing that, that I noticed for the first time, unlike CG, where like everyone's working on right now a lot more remotely, everyone is in one place in this sort of 
organized circus. And um, you start realizing that like in stop motion, oh, the animators are truly the jocks. You know what I mean? Like they're the coolest people there because they do this incredible thing. And stop motion is such a, 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 a exclusive art that like they just were really cool. And they were walking around and, and, and talking about these crazy things that I could never do. But there was a, uh, uh, there was one moment uh, interaction with the animators and, and the workshop that I will always remember from this film, which is that it, you'll probably see this now that the movie's out. There's a sequence in Wendell and Wild, uh, which features this giant bug-like creature, uh, Sparkplug. I love his design. And it's a sequence where, a very Selix-type situation, uh, an insect crawls under a much larger insect's legs and gets smushed. It's a, like a key scene in like the second act of the film. And that was like only probably the second sequence I was launched on in the whole film. So... I was cocky, I was trying to show off, I was just so excited to work on a Henry Selick movie and I was feeling imposter syndrome, so I was just throwing every cool idea I could out into the boards. And I was like, okay, I'll do a, a shot following this bug under the legs of this giant bug, because I was just imagining all the cool Henry Selick shots I'd ever seen in all the movies I loved of his. And so I just follow, I, I made like a one-take virtuoso camera move where the camera follows the little bug through this forest of legs from this giant bug only to get smushed at the end of the shot. And so I pitched it feeling like really good about myself. <laughs> and Henry was like, oh yeah, that's a really awesome shot. And I felt great. And then a few seconds later, Henry was like, hmm, yeah, we're going to have to build a bigger set for that. We're going to have to build the underside of the bug at a much larger scale and then build that insect that goes under its legs at a larger scale so that we can fit the camera physically underneath it in order to be able to realize that shot. So I just realized in that one second with the, with the brush of my tablet pen, I had just created loads more work for, for the workshop team, for the animators, for everyone. I basically... Increased the budget by five I know, exactly. Yeah. I mean, basically, I'm the reason Netflix subscribership crashed and now they're in the top. I, I killed Netflix animation. No, um, but it was like, oh my God, I just, I just made a whole new set. Yeah. Because it's not CG. It's not like assets where, no. you know, I mean, part of the, the, the weird misconception about CG animation is that it is that you can do everything. You, you still have to use CG animation like assets as well. Mm. Working in stop motion actually made me a better CG. You still need to create something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you still yeah. need to create stuff and you still need to save money wherever you can mm. and, and, and consolidate shots. I think working on Wendell and Wild made me a better storyboard artist for CG animation, frankly. But I, I, I'll never forget I flew into Portland the first time I was there. I was just spent a couple of days there in this little tiny room with the story guys. And I was walking down a corridor once and this animator guy said, are you Trumbull? <laughs> it was the first time. Are you, are and, you Trumbull? And, and so having, having grown up on the schoolyard. Where's your lunch money? <laughs> having grown up on the schoolyard, I wanted to say no and run away. Or be like, he's Trumbull. And then <laughs> leg it. He said, come with me. And he was like, he came up to this woman who worked in the bookshop. was like, this is Trumbull. And she was like, oh, Trumbull, come with me. And I was like, oh, shoot. Boy, they're going to go and kill me. <laughs> but like, they took me into this they tiny crushed little. crushed by a giant spider. You know, like, yeah, they <laughs> that would have been the best thing ever. Yeah. Crushed by my own creation. <laughs> no, but they took me into, behind this dark curtain into this dark room and there was the underside of Sparkplug mm. as this incredible set, the same size as the table that we're talking about Oh, so about they right did now. do it. They built right. the whole set and they said, here's the, here's the motorized mechanism that we had to create to make Sparkplug's legs move uh, yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> on this shot. And, then, and, and there's a motion control camera that goes under with the bug. Everything else around it is a blue screen. They're going to add in the, the background to it later, but they, the, the main shot is all in and I was like, I am so sorry. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I can't apologize enough. And they were like, no, don't apologize. We love this shit. 
they were like, you know, yeah, if it, it was, it was hard. It was a headache, but like, yeah. this is going to be a really cool shot in the but film. This is it. And they it's, dug it, you know? It's problem solving and it's yeah. special effects, you know, chemistry experts. It's people who knew how to use hydraulics yeah. and machinery. It takes stuff apart. That's what you still see kind of alive in stop motion. Yes. Kind of the dying art of practical effects you see in other movies. Yeah, tactile. Tactile yeah. effects. Well, it's problem solving. It's like, how are we going to pull this off? Because it isn't just a case of just putting it in the computer and just like mapping it out and it, yeah. you can achieve any shot yeah. with, with regret of ease. It's that element just saying, yeah, you caused yeah. a headache, but we love that. We love a challenge. Yeah, no, and, and to this day, I, I, I look at that shot with so much love because yeah. it, it taught me two things. One, it was like, the pen is mightier than the sword. Never go all in on a big virtuoso shot unless it's for a reason. Don't mm-hmm. do it to peacock around yeah. as a storyboard artist. Only follow the story. Luckily, what I did for that scene mm. was something everyone went for. Yeah. And it costs so much money to make this shit. Yeah. And so do it for a good reason. And luckily, the reason that I was doing it for was like, I wanted to delight the audience the way I felt delighted when I would see an amazing shot in a Henry Selleck movie, like Nightmare Before Christmas, going around him on the gravestone and, yeah. and all these things. So you get, but I learned, you get a couple of those, but you don't do it all the time. Well, yeah, we really look forward to seeing it. Obviously, listeners, right now, when this episode is out, you'll be able to immediately go onto Netflix and watch Wendell and Wild. But right now, we're still looking forward to seeing it when it drops on Friday. But one question, Dave, given that this episode is based around a children's television Mm. series... Is Wendell and Wild suitable for kids or no? I would actually say it is. I mean, a, a lot of hay has been made over the last few weeks about the fact that it is a PG-13 right. movie. And it, it's a PG-13 movie for the simple fact... There's this horrible bit of a bug getting crushed. Up oh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was the <laughs> big, the MPA. Bug was murder, like, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, there's what a, was Coraline? A terribly graphic... PG, surely. Yeah, I mean, there's no way Coraline wasn't also PG. Uh, well, you're, but you're saying this PG-13. This is like a PG-13. It's worse than the reason, the reason that it's a PG-13 is for mild suggestion of substance abuse and oh, okay. a few That's bad fine, swear words. I feel like like a few swear words that are very very middle of the road. What like substance sim- we talking about here, glue? Well, I mean, it's it's a, it, it's actually well, the movie's out, so fuck it, I can say it because. We're, we're in the future now. Uh, the, the, it's it's magic hair cream that Wendell and Wilde imbibe um, because their job as penance for having caused a mutiny in the underworld is that they have to pour hair cream into the pores of their dad's giant head because their dad, voiced by Ving Rhames, is like the size of a mountain. And they're on his head dropping little globs of his hair gel to try to stop him from growing bald. That's the opening of the movie. <laughs> to, 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 to give you an indication of just how wacko this movie is it's so crazy how wacky the NBA yeah. are but they oh. get but they get high off it as well oh, so it's like right. there's a the, the, there is a certain moment but, where they yeah. start tripping balls on hair that, that sounds yeah. okay I mean because literally just tell your kids look yeah. don't ingest mummy's hair no it will go oh, straight yeah. over their heads they're just going to think it's funny and magical yeah. and stuff and yeah. you know you've, everybody's taking the lid off like tapex and got a little bit of a hit no like who who hasn't who hasn't had had weird demonic hallucinations on on some kind of substance. So you don't think it's because it's too scary? <laughs> I would actually wager, because someone did ask me this before, is this going to be a scary movie to show my kid? And I said, actually, mm-hmm. if your kid can get through Coraline, you can definitely get through this movie. It's nowhere near scary. Is scary. Coraline is genuinely unnerving. There's no other mother type scares in, in uh, this. And Henry has often said in interviews that he would rather scare children than scar them. He doesn't really want to traumatize right. children. <laughs> so Wendell Wilde is more spooky. Mm-hmm. It's it's ah, okay. it's it's a a bit of a Halloween fun. I know what you are, Cad. You're a hell maiden. 
But it has to be our secret. That's how I can protect you. Protect me from what? Your demons. Whoa! I'm having a vision! <laughs> a green-headed girl. She seems so real. Greetings. We are the magician mortician, the artists of the afterlife. So, as your masters, we order you to turn around and, uh... <laughs> You're tripping. are raising an army of the dead! Tingo! Gotcha! My demon's my problem. So, yeah. Star Trek Prodigy. Oh, right, Let's... this is a Star Trek podcast. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is a Star Trek podcast. We've got... We know your Trek credentials of old, David. We're fine. Yes, mostly this show. <laughs> but I chose you to come on this episode... Because, number one, you're a resident animation expert. Number two, I know you're a fan of the show. Yes. And you actually wrote a very passionate Twitter thread about the show, which was very eloquent. So I thought you'd be a great person to come and speak about the show. Why is it that you love Star Trek? First off, thanks for mentioning the thread. I actually probably will repost the thread once this episode airs because it, it, it definitely does a good job of explaining why I why I love the show. But um, I think the answer is that Star Trek Prodigy was something I did not know I needed in my television. It's, not some, it's something I didn't know I, I needed in terms of animation content that I was basically like... We've, we've, we've hit this very saturated period of streaming where every IP under the sun is being turned into things. Like Even things that weren't successful in the past, like Willow and the Dark Crystal, are becoming series because they're just, what, what do we have? What do we have that we can put onto a streamer? You know, Disney Plus is making all of, like, uh, Hocus Pocus 2. Yeah, let's do it, let's do it. Um, uh, let's Again, make, a flop yeah. on release. Exactly, yeah. yeah, exactly. Like All these things that, were, that, that became cult classics are now suddenly being mined for content, which is kind of ironic when you consider it's like executives saying, no, no, we must do IPs because that's the only thing that's safe. Considering a lot of the IPs that they're doing, it's like, yeah, we need something that we know is going to make money, like Willow. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, what are you it's talking just, about? It's that yeah. brand yeah. recognition thing, isn't it? But it shows you the short-sightedness of executives. Mm. But consequently, it's been a media landscape where I've watched like God knows how many Star Wars programs and different things trying to get me to feel nostalgia. And nostalgia has become kind of a dirty word now in the, in, in the industry. Like a lot of people are very contemptuous of it. Like, uh, a, people can feel content creators pandering to them, but also it's become something that divides fans and creates a lot of toxicity. Like some people have uh, nostalgia for one thing and another group of people have nostalgia for another. So you end up with an awful lot of like infighting. When the new Star Trek shows like Discovery and even Picard, which I was really excited because like Picard was like slap bang in the middle of my teenage years, was like next generation every evening. It took a lot for me to be like, to muster any enthusiasm for any of this stuff, even though it was like, oh, now we finally have Star Trek back on our screens. And it wasn't until Prodigy came along that it actually accomplished like a minor miracle, which is it got quite a cynical guy now to start thinking about Star Trek again, to actually like be daydreaming about the worlds of Star Trek, the characters of Star Trek, the aliens of Star Trek. And it wasn't even just 
though because they were in the show like it, it actually doesn't have an awful lot of uh, nostalgia baiting in it i mean it has one or two really uh, impactful examples but for the most part it's an entirely original story with entirely new aliens and entirely new characters it doesn't begin with the federation which is a very bold choice for a star trek show and in doing so kind of performs a triple backflip of of starting with something that isn't what you expect from the ip and then in doing so is the perfect gateway drug to get kids and old fans like myself back to being excited about Star Trek again. And I realized like, you know, the book of Boba Fett didn't make me think about Star Wars anymore. I was like, oh, that's the Rancor. That's a Naboo fighter. And then I turned it off and I never thought about it again. Whereas Prodigy got me thinking about the Delta Quadrant. And it got me thinking about what Janeway and the Voyager crew were doing. And it got me thinking just about like, oh my God, that's a Ferengi. Uh, you know, like, I, what are Ferengi's up to now? Like, and, and it's sort of perfectly placed in the timeline of Star Trek. For me, my Star Trek sweet spot, which is that we, you know, one of the things that I think causes a lot of fan infighting in Star Trek these days is when the creators go back to a period that sandwiches new events into a place where we think we know all the established events. So like Strange New Worlds gets away with being the gap between the cage and where no man's gone before. Like it gets away with it because it's a missing piece of Pike's tenure on the Enterprise. But Disco, when it first started, they were like, oh, you're telling me that Spock had a sister? How come it wasn't mentioned in anything else? It's like, well, because it was never written before. Like, this is a new thing. But anytime Star Wars goes and says, oh, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader fought a second time, you know, like uh, after Mustafar, between then and A New Hope, uh, equidistant from and, the two uh, from those two points we know fans get <laughs> irritated because they're like did how did like like even if it works even if it actually fits into the canon fans get uneasy about it and prodigy is in what i think the ideal star trek timeline it's around the events of picard it's in the future for things that we grew up in it's kind of like feels like it aged at the same rate that we did from when we watched deep space nine voyager next generation so we don't feel like anything from our established timelines being played around with. And it's in a new corner of the galaxy with characters that are completely uh, separate. And therefore, we don't feel like any weird sense of infringement upon our established ideas. But it's actually perfect for then coming all the way back around again, because as we'll talk about later, this, the second half of the series is teasing a re-emergence of a lot of things that, that are from our, our experience of the show. Well, I mean, I suppose even that, because this is post-Nemesis, isn't it? With yeah. Janeway being an admiral and all yeah. that kind of thing, like, and on a different ship from Voyager, yes. uh, the USS Dauntless, mm. um, the real Janeway, I mean, not yes. the hologram one. Uh, so again, it's still in kind of unexplored territory because even uh, Lower Decks is obviously in the same sort of timeline, because mm. that's kind of post-Nemesis as well with... Riker on the Titan, everything that, and literally Picard is post Nemesis as well, but it's literally really far post Nemesis, like yeah. 20 years down the line or something like yeah. that. So it's still in a reasonably unexplored piece of the kind of universe mm. um, at the moment. Um, Paul, what were your first thoughts on Star Trek Prodigy? I mean, just you mentioned the timeline, is it? Like, uh, I've just got such a sense of nihilism knowing the burn's still going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I've not watched that season of Disco, so I don't even, I don't even think about the burn. Time. <laughs> yeah. The burn, the burn. Um, the burn. Yeah. 
good Chinese burn on all of my <laughs> dreams for Starfleet. Um, but yeah, it's probably like, um, yeah, I thought, yeah, this is the way you should start all children's shows on a penal colony. Um, <laughs> with, ah! with a tiny cute cat being yeah. dragooned into service. Yeah, by so. a caves on though, less. Oh, yeah. <laughs> quite as bad as the child execution at the start of Pirates of the Caribbean. No. That was, that was, that was, that was, that was definitely the worst film ever. But it's still the highlight of that film. I mean, like, yeah, truly the only thing I remember without that. <laughs> yeah. about that. Well, at least Johnny Depp wasn't in screen at that point. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I yeah took me a couple of hours to kind of get into it. But my goodness, did I did I kind of pick up with the with the characters and kind of yeah really kind of enjoyed it. There was a few sort of pit stops on the way. I there was a lot of things it reminded me of. And I thought it was very um, it felt a bit derivative at times mm. of things that were you could tell the writers were, grew up on a certain era. Mm. Star Wars prequels being one. I thought mm. there was so much episode two and three in this. Oh, okay. With like That's the, interesting. The battle droids, like with those kind of um, enforcement droids. They yeah. felt very much like... And Dreadnought, like, Dreadnought being very yeah. grievous, grievous like. Grievous yeah. like was there, you know, and he was sort of a, a grievous plus with all of the kind of like, mm. well, the, the Doc Ock arms as well mm. and that kind of stuff. So it felt 2002, 2004, there was even a Matrix 2 gag. Where it says upgrades. Yes. Mm. I was like, yes. so they, you can tell they've kind of grown up through, the, through that kind of era of cinema. But, you know, it was just, it was like, it wasn't, it didn't do or die by its, its references. I think it was still his own thing. Mm. Interesting, there was another thing it reminded me of was um, the Star Trek comics. Do you remember the uh, original series, original comic yes. strips with the uh, planet of like killer plants? Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. 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 Well, yeah, yeah, there's a shot yeah. where yeah. the protostar try to take off and all the Science. killer plants. Like, yeah, it's yeah. almost taken from like, that first ever Star Trek bulky we comic. And we were reading it and going, like, wouldn't this be great to be in a TV show? Now it is. It but they good. didn't vaporize all of the plant life. No, 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 they didn't nuke it from orbit. Yeah. Yeah. It was just sure, like, yeah. wipe them out, all of them. Yeah. I love that it's Spock that suggests that as well. Yeah. Renowned humanitarian <laughs> Spock. Yeah. That's it. I really started to like, grow the characters. I enjoyed them. Uh, I think I had to keep reminding myself, like, it's for kids. But I was like, what age kids? Like, Because Theo's not that age yet. He's only three and a half. I'm like, yeah, he's way too young for this. Like, yes. But, like, at what point? Who is this really aimed at? Like, yeah. Um, well, it is interesting that you mention that because it's created by uh, the Hagerman brothers, the Dan and Kevin Hagerman, and they worked on uh, another series in collusion with Netflix. Um, I think it was Troll Hunters or, and uh, okay. Wizards of Arcadia, and uh, basically a very successful, long-running, uh, episodic but but slightly serialized series. But it was another show that very successfully catered to children whilst also being a show that adults could enjoy. And uh, they were given like a mandate when they were creating this show of like, we want to make a Star Trek show that old Star Trek fans can enjoy and children can enjoy specifically so that you could feel like you could introduce your kid to the show you love and it could be the perfect gateway into Star Trek. But what's also interesting about it is like, you're totally right. The science in quite a few of the episodes is really interesting, but that's for a very specific reason, which is they had a scientific consultant come in to talk with the script department and things like that, but specifically because they wanted to get opportunities for children to fall in love with STEM and like yeah. other types of things. And and there's something really poignant with the character of Rokhtar, which is like a really, really lovely subversion of like a female character being like, you at first you don't know she's a little girl because she's yeah. a big rock monster and they don't have universal translators yet. Yeah. And when you finally find out, you think, oh my God, it's a really lovely way to just change your opinion of this person. Mm-hmm. And you realize that she's like an eight-year-old girl, but a giant rock monster. So yeah. her, her role in the series is she's got like a little mini arc of being sort of mistakenly like always given the role of enforcer or like security on the ship because she's the big lumbering beast. Yeah. But then, you know, there's a really beautiful episode, which is my favorite episode of the show, Time which off. is 
uh, yeah, uh, a mock, yeah, yeah, my favorite, uh, yeah, time a mock, which is uh, obviously a reference to a mock time, the title. Like, yeah. I think all the titles are loving references, but it the science of that episode is a really sophisticated and interesting, and it's the kind of thing that will make a young kid be like, "Ooh, I'm interested in science." Now. Yeah, learning about kids how time. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, the kid's first inception, it's brilliant. But also, it has a little lovely arc of, like, Rokhtar has to learn to figure out how to fix this thing in the time that she's been given. And by the final two-parter, she's actually become, like, the tech whiz support of the team. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know... I just imagine like a little girl who might or might not be interested in STEM or think that that's a path available to her, be like, hey, Rock Tower could do it. That's like, It's a really beautiful little thing. Yeah, I think yeah. that's great. One of my favorite bits of that show is, you know, her going all into Stella. Yeah. And coming back out like, you know, yeah. I had 27 years to look into this. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah, now she's a witch. Did they actually yeah. confirm how long it was? It's a bit, or, no, they just, just Janeway goes too long. Too long. Too yeah. long, yeah. So we just wanted, like, a bit like the Groundhog Day question, how long is Bill Murray in that loop? Yeah, yeah. to learn Long enough to, like, torture Seth Green. She was the one who had the longest... <laughs> 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 what I like about that, though, is that it's like she's had that inner light moment, almost. Like, she had a lifetime in that mm-hmm. one yeah. moment. Oh, that's and now she came back. That's the worrying bit, yeah. like, because I, I, I don't think it's, it's too long. I think it's long mm-hmm. enough to read some bit, because She's still quite. I've got that childish yeah. play when when she's not like when, suddenly when fifteen. Yeah, don't come out more beard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you know, just hold the door. It's like I can do this more than you. It's like okay, new plan. I'll hold the door. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, and I thought that was a brilliant scene. Probably my favorite from the finale. I love Rockstar. I think yeah. she's a great character. And my, I think that's the trouble. It's like oh, I need to get Theo in front of this show because he loves rock monsters. Right? You need to get him in front of Star Trek Five Final Frontier <laughs> Director's Edition yeah. when it comes out. For I did show Shatter. him the deleted scene from Star Trek Five just on its own. He's going, "You want to see a rock monster? Here it is." He's like, looked at it, and just walked off. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that there are a lot of things in the DNA of the show that aren't specifically Star Trek but feel derivative of other things because you could almost view that character, the rock monster. As as like a, a, a nod to Galaxy Quest, the, the big rock monster, yeah. uh, Gorgneck, or whatever it's yeah, called. It's like, great. I think the, well, this is the thing, Final Frontier is being mined for some of the best of Star Trek these days. Including <laughs> 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 like the reimagining of, of uh, Cybok in Stage of the Oh Wars, yeah. Like, which I'm like, yeah, Cybok. Oh yeah, I, I think I have. I, I haven't seen it, but I, I think know. I have heard that the yeah. Cybok. Yeah. Right. And then you've got the rock monsters being re- reimagined. But that's how fandom works. On a long enough timeline, everything becomes canon and everything becomes loved. We be- we live in a timeline where Hayden Christensen returning to the role of Darth Vader is greeted with almost universal applause. You know, that's a yeah. wonderful time. Well, I think... But it just shows you how things go round and round. Yeah, until they saw it. Yeah. <laughs> I thought he did okay. I thought yeah, he, he, represent, he, he represented good. himself better than no, a lot of others. He people. did very, very well yeah. in that scene where he just says, like, you know, it wasn't you won like I you know, did yeah, yeah it was really good did it. I thought that was that was good but I also just don't consider that canon <laughs> <laughs> well, therein lies the problem I was talking about earlier like when you're creating something in a world like it's really hard because you want to be able to put it play um in a in a context that makes people feel like you're, like you're adding complementarily to that world as yeah. opposed to interfering and dicking around with your model set you know what I yeah. mean your sandbox and I actually love that the, the, one of the strengths of this show like you say it begins it's quite a bold swing it begins mm. in a penal colony mm. it begins the furthest away from the Federation that you could imagine but it uses that as an absolute strength because A that, that opening first two, two parter is like a little mini movie it's like a great long extended pilot yeah. Jamie doesn't even show up the hologram until they finally get aboard the protostar and escape. Yeah, it's the final scene of yeah. the opening two part. Of the opening two part. Yeah, and and so so they realized that their strength was we need to appeal to children and we need to get children into Star Trek. So our main character is going to be children, teenagers, 
and uh, or, or childlike characters, and they are going to not have any idea what the Federation is or, or why it's important, mm-hmm. and they are going to be the audience. And then we're going to slowly drip feed it to the point that when you get to a moral star, part one and two, you know, there are a couple of derivative nitpicks I have with that final episode, but I feel like the, the end of the series arc is them showing up in their uniforms. But by the time they do show up in their uniforms, it really mm-hmm. means something because they've actually taken on board what it means to be a, a part of a universal utopia. So like, it's weird to be talking about this in the time of like the Russian invasion of Ukraine and stuff like that, because one of the things that I found really striking the second time I watched the show, because I watched it again in preparation for this pod, is how, how great it is to be with a bunch of characters who don't immediately think, hey, let's go to the Federation. Like, they find out what the Federation is from Hologram Janeway, Mm -hmm. uh, who mistakes them for cadets, and Dahl, the main character, his first instinct is, I don't want to go to the Federation. They're just going to be a bunch of other people telling us what to do. Mm -hmm. And it makes perfect sense for his character to be mistrustful of another big controlling force having grown up in this world. Of of authority. But also, it kind of, like, has interesting, like, it's an interesting way to tell a Star Trek story, because every Star Trek show that's ever existed begins from the default of being in the belly of the beast of of Starfleet. So, it's almost like, you know, for all we know, like, one person's utopia is another person's dictatorship. You know, there are lots of readings of different Star Trek episodes where you see other races and species, like, talking about how they hate Starfleet and stuff like that. Yeah. And and so, like, you know, sometimes I find Starfleet kind of irritating because you simultaneously want to cater to the Roddenberry sort of Boy Scout goodness, but then there's also, like, a dichotomy of the filmmakers feel like they have to show badassery in the characters as well. Like, Data has to say lock and load in Insurrection. Like, we can't have it be, like, that they're just perfect. We also have to have moments where there are bad actors and corruption and stuff to tell interesting well, stories. Every, every admiral you ever come across is incompetent or corrupt. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. it's just like, yeah, there's us and Deep Space Nine spent yeah. seven seasons telling you Starfleet has issues. And it's like, yeah, you, uh, you want to wonder, like, is Starfleet, like, just NATO but across the galaxy yeah. and like you look at stuff like the war going on right now and it's like you it's know, dumbo diplomacy yeah. I, yeah. I think isn't it you know and mm. they always say like you know, okay you're a science expert ship but you also come armed with fern torpedoes and phasers and stuff yeah oh for defense there's always an element of starfleet has a you know a very mighty sword and mm. sort of always you kind of want to join it because yeah if you don't join it you're kind of exposed yeah or you're kind like, of ostracized, you're ostracized by the community. You know, if anybody else wants to come yeah. and invade you we ain't gonna step in mm. yeah if you don't join nato like you're, yeah. you're pretty much uh you know out on your own and yeah. ukraine are the kind of like planet that flip-flops exactly oh, yeah. and because of that you feel like it's very refreshing to see these mm. characters who are all outcasts they're all just people who've been uh subjugated by this this horrible penal colony some of them want to go to Starfleet because they just want to be protected. And then there are others like Dahl who are just like, that's just another boot on my neck. And and because of that, it allows Janeway to be the one completely virtuous character in the story, mm-hmm. as opposed to like having to balance that, counterbalance it with like Starfleet are good, but they're also bad. She can be just a pure figure of virtue espousing the virtues of Roddenberry's yeah. vision. Well, and that's interesting because yeah. I didn't find the Janeway hologram initially to be very reminiscent of Janeway the character in no. Voyager because it is like the sort of sanitized, there's no mm. kind of grey area yeah. version of Janeway which is like how she set out on the mission mm. to the Badlands but had to sort of essentially make those 50-50 calls. No, this isn't we the Janeway from the Year yeah. of Hell, is no, it? You know? Yeah, and no. it's like, you know, where she's just sort of, you know, having to make those things again and again, like the crew, like, you know, push their mm. limit. 
Yeah, I think that's what we're going to see, hopefully, in the different version of, like, Admiral Janeway. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we will kind of see the difference in that character, because like, initially it just felt like they've just not got her voice. Well, it's funny, because they literally, that's the one thing they, of, of hers they do have. They have Kate Mulgrew as, yeah. as Janeway, but, but, but... In terms of the writing. I think you're right. There's even a great moment in the Murder Planet two-parter, which I just call the Murder Planet two-parter, because I love that it's basically a reference to the fact that every planet in Star Trek is essentially... Murder Planet. You know this I mean? is yeah. Dreamcatcher and Terra Firma. And Terra Firma. But there's literally a moment where she's alone in the ship and everyone else is mm. down on Murder Planet and she has to think, what would the real Janeway do? Which yeah. is actually a great acknowledgement of the fact that she's not the real Janeway. Yeah, yeah, that's the whole thing. Yeah. She's the perfect version of Janeway in yeah. a sanitized form. Yeah. In terms of, and that's, a, I think, actually, it's really clever because mm. by the end of the season or by the end of season one, part one, yeah. uh, they're introducing the real Janeway. That's the surprise mm. at the end of season one that actually we're going to see Admiral Janeway again. Mm. And that's the whole point, isn't it? Because they are going to be two different characters. When mm. they actually come up against each other, the, potentially there'll be conflict because Janeway, Admiral Janeway, is the grizzled Janeway who's been through everything we saw in Voyager yeah. and actually we know made some very morally compromised we've, all, yes. we've all been through 70s of Voyager look at us grizzled <laughs> <laughs> like, you no, know, no, like, it's like hologram Janeway has not been devolutionarily turned into a lizard hologram Janeway <laughs> did not fucked kill Paris, hologram Janeway did not kill Tuvix like, no. <laughs> like yeah that's yeah. the whole thing I, I'm, I'm just hoping for like you know some kind of interesting thing where she realises like you know what the Doctor went through all those years of like being a hologram that's been turned on too long. Like, what was that <laughs> he becomes an author and they're like, you know, we own your rights to that. Well, as long as <laughs> she's not <laughs> using the holodeck to create, what is it, emergency leader hologram fantasies like the Doctor does in that one episode. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, she's still doing Fairhaven though. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. no. She alludes to it in the show. She's like, yeah. oh, this is a personal favourite of mine. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I will say that I think this is the bravest and boldest show of the Kurtzman Star Trek universe era mm. of Star Trek television. Does he have to do with this? Oh yeah, yeah, he, 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 yeah this yeah, is during he, his tenure. He he greenlit the show. Kurtzman uh-huh, okay. has something to do with every Star Trek show right. because he is the overall. He's like the Kevin Feige of the Star Berman. Trek right now. Is it the, the Rick Berman. Yeah, you know, yeah. So, yeah, the Rick Berman. He's the yeah, he's the Rick Berman of this current era. Right. So he okay. is, you know, it, he it will be him that spearheads the idea for each show and go. We should yeah. do this show now. You do it. Yeah, he so, hired uh, yeah, the Hagemans yeah, yeah, to win exactly. the show. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. and it's. Fun funny you say you mentioned derivative earlier the thing that i was most reminded of throughout this was guardians of the galaxy yes in terms of literally this feels like guardians of the galaxy in the star trek universe like right down to the fact that dow is basically the star lord yeah. of the show right down to the point of he was raised by Nandi, the Ferengi, yeah. who at one point ended up portraying him and saying, yeah. like, Nandi is his Yondu. Yeah. Then Gwendala, Gwendala uh, yeah. played by Ella Parnell, yeah. is the Gamora, because yes. she's the daughter of the bad guy. I'm really happy you said that, because I was yeah. going to bring that up. She is Gamora. Exactly. So it's like, yeah, there's a lot in there that's very kind of guys to get as best, and they are yeah. very much, and obviously they were on the prison colony, and then they yeah. escaped yeah. together. You could argue the that uh, Jank and Pog, Jason Mansuka's character, is quite a Draxian, sort of like, he yeah, yeah, constantly yeah, yeah 
he argues and is constantly contrarian. Like he's got that kind of slight personality shift. Yeah, yeah. They all kind of play those kind of roles. They are outlaws essentially within this universe, mm. while also kind of doing good. Mm. And I think the fact that it starts so far away yeah. from Starfleet or yeah. anything like that. I mean, the biggest failure of Star Trek Discovery season three was reintroducing Starfleet. Mm. Like for me, I thought they should have just got to the future. And they've gone so far in the future that there is no Starfleet. Starfleet no longer exists. They are Starfleet. Mm. And they have to go and extol Starfleet values over to everyone. I would think that would have been so much better. Whereas Mm. this show, obviously in this we know Starfleet does still exist because it's set within that timeline. It's not set. But what it's done is it's set in a corner of the universe where Starfleet have just not got the same kind of traction yeah. at the end of the day. So literally, they're just not as aware of yeah. the law or the history, and they're not as bothered. They're completely disconnected from the Federation. Or and if anything, kind of if they do have a perception of them, it's resentful. Yes, you know I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, certainly for the bad guy, like I think... The who, Diviner, yeah. Diviner, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Who literally, his whole thing is he actually wants to destroy Starfleet because he's come from the future and uh, Starfleet making first contact with his cause a civil war which wiped them out yeah no, an interesting I, idea I've got to be honest with you so so two things one I absolutely agree with you on Gwendala's character being Gamora except mm. for the thing I love about Gwendala I think she's a fantastic character in the show she's one of my favourite characters because she takes the character trope that Gamora occupied in Guardians and actually does it in a way that I actually vastly prefer mm. to what they did in Guardians Galaxy I always had a problem in that first Guardians movie that Gamora's being reformed is off screen she's always basically from the beginning it's revealed that she in fact was trying to work against Thanos and like so she just gets to be kick-ass Zoe Saldana that everyone likes from the beginning without ever going on a moral journey of having her, her belief in what she did and her, mm. and her father's work questioned so with Elapano's Gwyn, I think they chart a beautiful little mini journey in that first half of her painting a portrait of someone who's genuinely uh, complicit in her father's actions at the beginning. Like she's doing little things to try to do what she views to be right mm-hmm. within her role, but she's still very much a part of the organization. And unlike like, you know, a film where you don't have time to go through that journey, over those episodes, they really do a good job of her like wrestling with it and actually having her preconceptions changed, having moments where she's working against them, but then very convincingly making her having her thaw and and become very emotionally affected by this newfound family. Uh, I, I think it's a beautiful thing because they it, she's also not overacting in any point through either the boarding mm-hmm. or the performance or the animation. Like a lot of what she's doing is internal. You just see these little moments of her like tiptoeing out of her shell to, to gain more of friendship with them. And by the time that, uh, I mean, the main thing I would say about the whole show is that because, because we're in a place where the Federation doesn't matter, that's where Federation matters the most. So this is a place where those values are truly needed. So now that you have a show where you don't see the iconic Starfleet comm badge every episode, the moments that you do see it in the show are really poetic and, and impactful. Like there's the, the uh, first contact episode with the Ferengi where they make contact with these aliens that, have, that c- communicate through our harmonics. And, and uh, the Ferengi double-crosses them and tries to steal a crystal that's part of their power source, part of their life source. And they return the crystal back by beaming it 
using the combat. They basically beam the combat that they attach to the crystals to beam it back onto the planet. So after this episode, in which they actually fail in living up to the values of the Federation because their first contact goes terribly wrong, they, they actually really disappoint Hologram Janeway at the end of that episode, there's still a very poignant moment where, where the aliens that see their crystal being returned to them see the crystals returned to them, and on the crystal is that Starfleet badge. So that symbol means more because it's used less. And when it does get used, like when they show up in their uniforms, it feels more earned than just being like, we're from the Federation, which means we're better, we're better than you. You know what I mean? Like, mm. we're superior from the start. I'm just, just surprised that you could step on and break it, though. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that'd be like the hardest piece of Lego. Yes. Could, like, it would hurt you even if you wore shoes. It's a little <laughs> prosaic, isn't it? <laughs> What's interesting with Gwyn's journey as well is, of course, because they kidnap her, mm. we actually get shown in that opening two-part pilot that she does oppose mm. her father's plans mm. in terms of she really she's scared by kind of the evil that her father seems capable of. Mm. But then they do actually kidnap her, which obviously makes her feel kind of like the outsider. And then when you get to the uh, Dreamcatcher Terra Firma two-parter, yeah. the whole thing is she does essentially portray them at mm. first. Yeah. She is going to sideword her just because that's what she knows. And she does actually love her father. Yeah. Um, but then when she learns that her father cares more about getting the protostar than yeah. her, although it's interesting they do a similar thing where it's like it, the diviner clearly does care about yeah. her, but not enough. And like, yeah. you know, he cares about that more and he's abandoning her. That's when she realizes that actually her true family, mm, right. the people who come back mm. for her, is the crew of the protostar. I thought it was good that they spent some time actually with the guilt she's got for what she her complicit nature of like yeah. a, you know, with the enslavement of all those people. It was like, you know, they didn't actually commit any crimes. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I helped yeah, yeah. you. And like she basically feels like she has to punish herself for that. I was like, there's quite heavy themes for like a kid's show. Yeah, and like unlike Gamora, who's already made her choice, by the time she says, You made your choice and I make mine, that is an episode that's built up in like four episodes mm. to her making that choice. And so so it is really beautifully charted. And speaking about the diviner, I love this show. Like on on a global note, this show is absolutely my jam and it makes me feel deep, deep love for the for the IP, which is like no mean feat in this really totally crowded uh, marketplace. But um, I, so tiny nitpick about the series is that like, I think the strength of the show is its episodic uh, nature and its characters. It kind of essays a bunch of classic Star Trek episode formats, the, the murder planet episode, the bottle episode, you know, time loop episode, all of these different things uh, are set across this epic canvas. It's one like drawback or weakness, I'd say, is its overarching plot that's MacGuffin of the protostar and what the diviner wants with it mm. and I, I've got to preface that by saying like as far as I can tell because I haven't seen the second half of the first season so for all I know it's going to get go somewhere even more interesting which I'm totally open to I think the the weakest episode for me is the two-parter at the end the moral star because I, I know from the way I understand animation like reading tweets from some of the writers when it first aired they were like saying oh my God, everyone pulled such crazy long hours to get this episode finished and boarded and stuff. And it feels, for me personally, as a story artist, I can look at it and see areas where I'm like, okay, this was a really hard episode for them to get right. And they, you know, some of it felt like slightly cobbled together in a way the other episodes are a bit more glossy and a bit more uh, refined. But, but, but the, the, the big thing about it is that like the arc of the Diviner and the reveal is the one issue that feels derivative in like maybe a less less good way because it feels like Nero from the first yeah, Star Trek I think Trek. that was it it just went too big though. I think yeah. it, there was an interesting thing when I was watching it on my 
phone all the way here, and there was, you know, some of the time says, like, you know, it says mm. 13 minutes, and then it's like, and I thought actually, was this going to be a lot shorter? Mm. It's going to be like half and half an episode. Yeah, yeah. And I thought any one of these points would be an amazing place to stop. Yeah. Because I have just like reached peak. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. And they just then it wrapped it up way too much. Mm. Like you had the you know zero um, mm. revealing itself as a non-corporeal being. I love zero. Know, yeah, yeah, great. But it's just like you didn't. I don't. I think the Raiders of the Lost Ark moment mm. needed to come in next season. Yeah, I thought like it went far too big it, when it could have actually just like there was so many high points of drama mm. where you almost had them going away with Gwen and they're having to go ch- on the chase. Well, like, it's a middle. Know, it, it's a middle it, of the season. Like it's interesting to see it as the middle of season one. Yeah. Because it does try very hard to be a climax, a finale. Yeah. And it, and it was more interesting to be like, here's a bunch of cool things that are going on, but like not everything is resolved. And yeah. Right, the the, the Chris and Bake race free take back over, take control of that ship was yeah. enough. Yeah. To finish that season, I thought that's some of the the best bit where mm. you know you had um, the the um, bait and switch. Yeah. And the, and the fantastic, you know, Grievous robot getting, like, yeah. t- uh, taken down by all the... By the kitten. <laughs> by the kitten, with the kitty claws. Yeah. Head off. I'm like, that's great. Dude, end of that. <laughs> like, exactly. Well, you know, I could have even ended it when they show up in the Starfleet uniforms. That would have been, like, mm. next yeah. season done. Yeah. yeah. But but, but, it, but but the thing about... The thing is, it's, like, it's yet another example of a villain who hates Starfleet. Yeah. And that's, like, a trope that you guys have talked about on the podcast. No, it, like, was mo- it was yeah. enough than him trying to stop the event. Just the event, mm. like, and there needs to be a reason why the protostar was required for that. Yeah, and I was interested as well because, like, I, that's a really good sort of, um, you know, the, the negative effects of a first contact hasn't really been explored. No, there's like, has in the original series where you kind of get Nazi planet, you mm. get like, you know, the kind of things where somebody's like left the wrong book behind. And yeah, the, the, the oh no, you left mine camp. Yeah, oh. <laughs> and it's just like yeah, the two episodes like that. It was like you know mm. the one with yeah. the gangsters as well. That was the one that's going to be like the Star Trek fourteen. Yeah, it? yeah, yeah, yeah. One. yeah. So there's like things to be in mind about like net first contact gone wrong, and civil war based on the fact like oh there's um, unlimited power to be had here, mm. and then exploring why how that happened mm. would have been a really cool thing to explore the second episode. But yeah, it just mm. turning like I'm going to go and destroy all of Starfleet. Well, it, it's just, not yeah. only is it like also, well, it also not yeah, and Nemesis as well. Well, not only is it Carnunian Singh was abandoned by Starfleet. Like it's a very common Star Trek trope that it's like a angry man who mm-hmm. an alien who was fucked over in some way by the Federation has this plan to send like some kamikaze run into the heart of of, of Starfleet. You feel a bit like me with my story hat on. I'm saying. They know where they want to be at the end of the season and they're trying really hard to get there, but they need like a, a, a one more draft of it because they know that they want the twist to be that they want to go to Starfleet now, but they can't because if they go in the protostar, this virus on the protostar will destroy Starfleet because that's what he wants. That's why he wants the protostar because he created this big virus that's, that's going to destroy all the ships like a Trojan horse. And I'm like, Goodbye. yeah, but yeah, well, exactly. Like, wouldn't it be funny if like, yeah, I've got a villain who's, his whole MO is I'm, I'm here to prevent the burn. No, but <laughs> that would be amazing actually. But it's weird because it's like, okay, so I, that explains his obsession with locating the protostar, but it's also like, that's not the only way you could attack Starfleet. Like mm-hmm. you, your only way you want to get Starfleet is through the protostar mm-hmm. is them returning the ship that they lost and there's a virus on it. Like you could send another ship with the pretense of a first contact to Starfleet and send the same virus. Or, you know what I mean? Like, have a better version of Starfleet to put to the people. Hmm. Like, stop the we'll get ahead of time and don't propose, like, something that has fulfilled, hmm. you know, in his view, the problems that Starfleet has. In terms yeah. of that, that would be more interesting hmm. to kind of, like, have the anti-Starfleet, sort of but just sort hmm. of, like, we can create another version of Utopia yeah. that 
is a direct conflict with what we go to be utopia yeah. these other shows. And I just feel like because it's just one person, it becomes it becomes Khan, it becomes Nero, it becomes yeah. you know uh, Tom Hardy. But also uh, the I, the idea that this boring. character like, has it, devoted all of his life and resources to focusing on this one ship, even losing it in yeah. the penal colony, and then digging for it with his like considerable resources, including his big ship. It's like you could be using those efforts elsewhere, but that that's the story they've committed themselves yeah. to. So I'm kind of reserving judgment. And he's going to find the other three yeah. Shankara stones as well. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> and then the cookies will be all powerful. <laughs> well, so, I, yeah. I should mention that the two-part finale is interesting, you're saying about everyone pulling together, because those two episodes, every single writer mm. on the staff of Star Trek Project yes, have yes. a credit yes. on those last two episodes. It was a team effort. All, all the other episodes are like written by one or two people, yeah. but that two-part night, every single writer's got a credit. Clearly it was a hustle. Yeah, so clearly they're obviously having to pull together to make that happen. I mean, I I, I, I was fine Jane, with... We communicate the end scene, like you work together as a team yes yeah I was I was fine with yeah. a, a moral star like you know it's, it's one of those things where I think you know the two part finale or mid season finale in this case uh, they always have to kind of you know pull together mm-hmm. all the elements and you can't just have a one off episodic adventure and I kind of think it did the thing that it most needed to do mm-hmm. which was have that crew graduates yes. essentially because yes. this show is actually the closest we have ever got to the long mooted <laughs> Starfleet Academy yeah. show or film because we are actually watching a crew learn to become Starfleet because it, literally in the third episode which is obviously we see Janeway introduced at the end of the uh, two part pilot mm, yeah. and then in the third episode uh, Starstruck is all to do with the crew getting to grips with Janeway being yes. there Dahl immediately is like, no, I have no interest in this, kind of, you know, mm. shuts her out. Whereas everyone else on the ship is actually interested in learning from Janeway mm. and training to become a member of Starfleet because yeah. she is under the assumption that they literally are yeah. a brand new crew, which she has to kind of show the ropes to. Mm. And then gradually she learns the truth. And But that's the whole thing. By the end, they kind of win her over as well. Mm. And, you know, by the end, they've earned the right... Mm to become Sophie. And for me, that's all the finale needs to do. And actually, they prove that by liberating yeah. the people on the prison planet. Yeah. Because as you say, we discover it's not so much as a prison for people who actually kind of deserve, but a slave colony, yeah. really. Because yeah. uh, obviously, one of the big twists, quite a few impressive twists mm. in, in the show, is that Nandi actually sold Dahl to the uh, prison planet, essentially. And so I, I think that's all they need to do. And the fact that they do that, they succeed in liberating everyone on there I think that's that's what I need in terms of them proving themselves and now that they kind of have done that and they kind of have earned their right to be a crew it's going to be interesting for them to actually come up against Starfleet and see if they accept them in that way or is Dow going to be proven right and actually, mm. they are just another establishment figure who kind of want to be o- over authoritarian and kind of take over and, like, you know, it's our way or the highway. Yeah. Everything like that. And actually, because the characters, the main characters that we follow and love in this show are not traditional Starfleet, 
are Starfleet going to be more antagonistic? You Obviously, know, Janeway, the real Admiral Janeway, it thinks she's going to rescue Chakotay, who was the former yes. captain of the Protostar, as you see in like this brief little snippet. They got Robert Beltran back, and it's like, that's obviously going to be a thread that they're going to be pulling mm. on. Because we don't season. really know yeah. what happened to Chakotay at this no, point, do still we? a mystery. So, yeah, 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 exactly. She's into a bird. Yeah. <laughs> Does that happen to him? And no, that was the pilot of Caretaker, you know, when Tom Paris just says, Don't you have some Native American trip like turning into a bird or something? Yeah, <laughs> yes, I remember that. Classic. <laughs> oh, <Paris>. the 90s. <laughs> um, but this has some great individual episodes along those lines of the crew learning yeah. to come, become part of Starfleet. Um, none more so than the sixth episode, Kobayashi, uh, yes. obviously based on the Kobayashi Maru test where Dahl, because Dahl's character is very kind of arrogant and kind yeah. of thinks, he, he immediately is like, well, of course I'll be, I'll be captain. Like, mm-hmm. I think, like, you know, I'm a captain now. Like, yeah, he, <laughs> he wants to be the Starfleet uh, captain. <laughs> right, captain for uh, space pirate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, because all these characters are mostly, like, teenage characters, certainly Dahl, Gwen, and uh, Jason Manzoukas' yeah. uh, Jankum uh, character are, and literally, he's just like, yeah, I'm going to be captain. It's going to be great. And he's kind of really full of himself. He's played by Brett Gray, who apparently is a, a singer as well, but also was one of the leads in On uh, My Block. Maybe we can get the season two, episode five situation. I've got to say, I thought Brett's voice performance as Dahl was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I think he's got so much charisma, yeah. a really energetic mm. kind of voice work from him as the lead and although he is arrogant yeah he is charming uh with he almost a slightly uh fresh prince kind yeah. of like fresh fresh prince of the space waves he takes the character that could so easily sorry captain jazz just imagine <laughs> just like cuts the outside of the ship airlock <laughs> ah! no, yeah, a holographic <laughs> butler needs to come up, yeah <laughs> he takes he takes a character that could so easily be like your stock rebellious teen mm. you know star lordy type character but really invest him even you know the fact that they don't immediately throw him and Gwendala into like a romance together instead they have more of a friendship with, with the, the potential for more but like it's funny you mentioned the Kobayashi episode because obviously it's an episode a lot of fans talk about and the thing I think that makes it interesting is it, it, that, that truly is the moment where Dal starts to come around to the idea of being a federation because he starts that test the Kobayashi Maru test just to prove to the others but almost to beat them. Like yes, he's, just, yes. he's just a gamer who wants to beat the game. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he is a gamer in the show. Yeah, exactly. To be yeah. Okay. And of yeah. course, uh, Kobayashi is the fan service episode because yeah. as part of doing this, because he's doing this kind of hologrammatic program uh, for the Kobayashi Maru test, and because of this, he gets uh, he can choose who's going to populate his crew. Yeah. And he's got Spock, he's got Odo, Scotty, uh, Ahura. All the people who couldn't say no. And uh, yeah, <laughs> well, and Beverly Crusher. Now, yeah, oh, all, yeah, all yeah. She of, said, yeah, yeah. She's she Gates, sews all of the lines together. Yeah, Gates <laughs> McFadden is the only uh, one who actually reprised her role properly for this. All of the other characters, they're using archival audio. Mm. Um, no. It, it was... 
<laughs> it was, I believe it was very much designed <laughs> as a tribute. Yes. Uh, at the end, it kind of comes up in like a loving yeah. memory of yeah. the, these people because obviously... I, I and believe, soon, Nichelle Nichols. Yeah, well, that's the thing. <laughs> well, Nichelle Nichols was not passed when the episode yeah, was yeah, made. Yeah, it's because it came out a year before. But it, obviously yeah. she was unwell. She obviously wasn't able to reprise yeah. the role. They use um, audio from Rafa Khan, apparently, mm. for her role. Yeah. Now, what I get a feeling you didn't like this. No, because it just it takes you right out. It's like I, I thought you could sweeten the audio a little bit. Yes, because it's like I thought space that. spark. Like, I mean, when I watch the remastered Star Trek, I'm like, I'm not going. Mm. Sounds like it's recorded in the bath, like it was yeah. when I was listening to it in this show. It, I was just so surprised how tinny, tinny it was, yeah. and like it, it was just it. I liked it in principle because it's, mm. but I was just reminded that you know you could hear the different eras, you could hear what's from a TV show, you could hear what's from a movie. And you can hear what was recorded new all next to each other. And it just was like, I think it was an experiment that wasn't worth the... I effect. kind of didn't... Okay, so so obviously it was very impressive that Aaron Walkie, the, the, the writer, uh, was able to trawl through oh, God, huge yeah. oh, hours yeah, and hours yeah, yeah, and hours yeah, yeah, of episodes yeah, yeah. to find all of the um, um, the dialogue to make this episode up. So like, But there was one moment where like, I'm truly taken out when Spock goes from classic Spock to like literally lines from the 2009 uh, Star Trek where he's incredibly old sounding so uh, I think it was I think it was from uh, Unification I think he's talking, he's talking about Patrick Stewart oh is he talking about uh, yeah I think it's when he just says you know remind me of a captain oh right yeah, okay, yeah but he sounds, he sounds well, like he would, yeah old. he would obviously be old yeah, 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 yeah. so he's a lot more yeah. 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 what yeah. weirded yeah. me yeah. out with that is that Odo Mm. Sounded fine. Odo said his yeah. his his voice sounded fine, whereas all the others mm. like Spock and Scotty yeah. and her, they do all sound weird. Like yeah, like you say, yeah. you can tell. Yeah. Oh, this is archival audio that you're using. Whereas mm. Odo, it really weird me out because I was almost like watching it go. Oh, when did Rene die? Like are they like you yeah. know like Charter Bibles because I was like if they got hit, but it was like oh no 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 yeah. he's all archived as well, but he sounded fine. Like you say, I don't know. I'm surprised they couldn't have done, like you say, more touching up of the audio mm. to make it feel more melded in. I mean, it sort of works because it's meant to be a hologrammatic. Program. Yeah, you kind of you kind of feel like it's yeah. yeah you yeah. can kind you of just about go, get away with it, don't you? But you almost like almost well, can't make them all sound like that then. But I, I agree with you yeah. in terms of the uh, writer Aaron J. Walt actually trawling through as he he must have had to do yeah. all of these fucking episodes to find. Well, specific if you follow that guy on Twitter, by the work. way, if you follow that guy on Twitter, he is very clear when you when you when you read his tweets that he's deeply passionate about Star Trek as well. Like he's a, yes, an yeah. uber geek about it, like knows details and and factoids about things that clearly make him the, the right guy for the job. Computer, just give me some of the best you got. Acknowledged. Populating crew. Communications officer, Uhura. All deck standing by, sir. Chief medical officer, Beverly Crusher. Looks like you could use some help, Captain. Chief of security, Odo. <sighs> and science officer, Spock. Request permission to come aboard. I like this guy. You should take notes, Jankum. Permission granted. This is gonna be easy. It was odd uh, in terms of the the archival audio, but I I genuinely thought, like Dave says, I think it was it was clearly done yeah. with love. It felt like a, and I think because it was the only episode yes. in the entire thing yeah. that was like that, that went out and out without yeah because yeah. with fan service because um interesting interesting fact about the, the the conception of the show which is that Kurtzman had a mandate for all of the shows which is like if you bring back a legacy character, it has to be for a story reason that's justified. 
So it's like with Janeway, Janeway was a pitch from the Hagemans. Like the, the, they were saying, we think this is a good show for Janeway. But I think mm. the fact that she was a hologram and not Admiral Janeway as she shows up later in the show, like that was what convinced Kurtzman that you could make this justifiable because she was she got to be a teacher to a whole new group of characters mm. and that made her interesting. Mm. So I feel like because of that mandate, the Kobayashi episode, I, I, I prefer a series that filters all of their fan service into one very specific moment. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And because it's the Kobayashi, which is in itself a brilliant Easter egg, like that's the most famous mm. test in Star Trek. Just having those characters show up in this game and have it be the next gen bridge and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, there was yeah. just a lot of joy for it. But it's like, hey, we're in a show about Star Trek. We want to have some fun. We want to show geeks uh, their deep cuts and we want to give them a little bit of love for the show, a little bit of nostalgia. If they just do it all at once and then the rest of the show is a super bold swing, yeah, that's yeah. my kind of I think that's service. why it got away yeah. with it. I, yeah, and it yeah. did, for me, only redeem the Kobayashi Maru test from Star Trek 09's yeah. worst scene, which I, I, I completely broke the kind yeah. of place to special disbelief yeah. in the way Chris Pine played that scene. Mm. So if you recall, he rigs the computer mm. and is just sitting there eating an apple, shooting them with his, with his yeah. invisible gun. Yes. Yeah. So I'm like... Do you make it any more obvious that you've you've cheated? I just feel like that was Abrams not meant to you know, hold himself in a little well, bit. Well, that's the JJ Slacker Kirk that he cultivates yeah, in those yeah, series. Yeah, whereas, yeah. like, the Kirk of Shatner, you believe, would have been so focused on, on getting through Starfleet yeah. that he would have done the test with a well, Yeah, because Kirk veneer is of not a slacker at all. Yeah. Kirk is, like, an absolute... That's the thing in yeah. terms of... I love 2009 Star Trek, mm. but the one thing which I actually said when we watched uh, the film for this podcast that had changed my opinion on it was growing to know Kirk so much more mm. through watching uh, the first six films back-to-back, re-watching yeah. them. Yeah. And I was like, when I got to Pine as Kirk in that first uh, Star Trek film, he felt far less like the character that I knew. Because like you say, he's, he's not a slacker. Mm. He's actually the best, most efficient soldier ever. He just handles it in such a way that kind of makes it feel like it's easy. Yeah. But I think yeah. that's his kind of like attitude. He instills confidence in numbers through like that kind of level-headedness and that mm. kind of yeah. courage and, you know, fortitude and just, yeah, leading. And, mm. you know, he's the leader, but like, he also invites opinion when necessary, but he makes decisions. And mm. I think that's that hornblower model mm. which you kind of see mm. in the chat performance. That you know, it's people kind of say it's like macho posture. I think it's not at all. It's mm. like a, it's a stoicism. Stoicism, yeah. yeah. And it's and it's putting that face. And we know he's behind the scenes. He's finding it hard because there's watching the original show. I was surprised how many scenes of counsel he gets from McCoy about. Yeah. Like, you know, you're you're driving yourself too hard with this. You know, you're short, the shoulders of the whole galaxy on you. Like weighing his decisions with a yeah. lot of guilt. Yeah. Exactly. And you know, people will die with my next decision. And you know, you just see how it affects him. And then goes on the bridge and just does it. Mm. And there's only a couple of see- uh, scenes where he does almost snap a little where bit. The, yeah, where, where he lets it's his star drop. Yeah. yeah, and it's sort of, um, it's a real big moment. Like, I think it's the um, sort of submarine in space episode. Yeah, yeah. The Balance of Terror. Balance of yeah. Terror, maybe. Or the one where they kind of, like, in a kind of um, chess match with, 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 with things going to destroy them. Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, the, the, the Corpomite manoeuvre. Well, also, the episode we watched yeah. that you brought to us. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the, uh, this side of this Paradise. This side of Paradise where he's like, this is mutiny. Yeah, yeah, yes. where he's left alone <laughs> yeah, yeah. on the ship, the only one. Yeah. And he's like almost breaking, and then he's like, literally looks at his medals. Not so he's the like, medals! Can't betray the can't medals! Can't betray the medals! Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, but we kind of said, we, Star Trek 09 like, gets away with playing that way because he's yeah. not the same character. He didn't have a father yeah. figure. 
he's this he's a different version he's a, he's a jackass version, version of Burke, yeah. yeah and it's like he will have the same attributes but it's like the nur- nature nurture but he wants element. to say fuck you to the federation mm. as opposed to be the best of the but he wants to be the, the best whilst letting them know that he mm. screwed them well he gets, gets on that ship saying I'll do it in three yeah like, exactly you know, and he, so it's like this guy's gonna knuckle down yeah. But like he's still jerking around. Well, he's later. he's more like Matt Damon in Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like a guy who can do this shit with his eyes closed. But to take it back to Dahl, that's what I think is so genius about the Kobayashi as a device in that episode. Because like speaking about like making it justifiable for the character growth, he genuinely gets completely obsessed with it. Yes, he's, yeah. he's not he, he's not doing it for a joke. After a while, he's like, "This is personal. It, I, I don't mm. even care if Jan Kampog leaves. This is between me and the game." And it's actually yeah. lovely because it's like obviously. You know, kids watching it who are obsessed with gaming nowadays could, could completely relate to yeah, like yeah, yeah. how it feels to die over and over again. And so mm-hmm. it, it becomes this beautiful moment where it's like you could tell that these people understand Trek because the whole point of the Kobayashi Maru is to bat a, a, a no win scenario. Yes, and, and so to see to a char- yeah, yeah to see a character genuinely go through that who hasn't even got a desire to be a part of Starfleet, but then realizes through the course of that game that he is just pushing himself subconsciously too mm. hard to be the mm. best at everything and yeah. to be right at everything that he needs to let people in and know that sometimes you fail that that's actually really beautiful and a really good use of fan service i guess yeah yeah and i must say i also thought the animated versions of all the old characters mm. were really lovely it was good to um, see them again yeah, yeah exactly and i think um one thing i'm talking about the animation actually i think the design um and the execution the animation yes. in prodigy is really fucking impressive it looks really fucking good really widescreen huge scope uh, I, I think it's looks really gorgeous. impressive it's very stylized in yeah. terms of kind of reminds me slightly of the uh cgi styles clone wars kind of thing but i think it's actually better designed i think it looks more expansive mm. yeah i think it's got some really really beautiful animation i was yeah. blown away by the scale of the assets yes because yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the thing i love about it was that they you're right that it is very stylized it's a very good use of your budget because you, you, you know obviously it must have cost a pretty penny to make a show that 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 breathtaking but what i loved about it is that the the macro shots of the ships you realize that like you can do gorgeous renders of all these incredible particle effects you can do pretty much anything in cg if you want but actually the more you make it the more stylized you make it you realize that star trek has iconic ships the, the iconic nacelles of a ship the sources of a ship mm-hmm. basically this show is a perfect example of you go out into that macro wide with those really incredible primary colors and a lot of it like uh triadic colors and and and, and beautiful beautiful but but very stark like images with a lot of negative space you realize that all you need to do is have the proto star in the frame and it's instantly star trek so yeah. you can paint these gorgeously abstract images of like a black hole of nebulas even the opening credit sequence where it's like flying through yeah, stuff that looks like the characters i love yeah. the proto star's shape i think it looks great i think yeah. that silhouette is one of the best looking ships we've seen in the new yeah. era iterations of star trek and it's a very small ship as well it's yeah. way smaller than any of the yeah. other ships I, I think that's it the scale doesn't really matter too much in terms of just its lines are really nice and very pleasing and i think that this is most twin as opposed to voyager where you do have like a, yeah. a warp drive you know i guess a, a adjustment it makes where it kind of changes into some another shape and then does its thing yeah i think that's kind of a nice little nod to it i mean i, I think jamie's new ship looks like a hoover yeah uh, at the end but <laughs> it was uh, but the protostar i'm all on board for well the protostar is like really it, it, it's a really stunning design because it, it it's nice to see a ship that's so small that you could walk it because if they're kids in like a classroom, essentially, it's like the room. It's like 
a, a giant ship, you couldn't be a very functioning skeleton, uh, skeleton crew. But yeah. with this ship, I mean, we haven't even touched upon other members of the ensemble like Zero and 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 Jagger Pop and 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 how how they all fit together. But there's a, there's a real sense of like there's like a dorm room. Like the barracks are really small. Mm. Like basically everyone in the ship just coexists in them and can't escape each other. It's and still so to quite make it a big, big ship, though, isn't it? It's not like Starbucks. It's quite big, but no, no, but but it is way smaller than any ship. Yeah, in that you've seen in Star Trek. Also, Star Trek like ships, a, yeah. a natural progression from yes. the strips we've seen in it up to Nemesis. Yeah. And it just feels like, oh, it's just, a, you know, the galaxy-class ship with the kind of, you know, glass ceiling mm. a little bit. This is now a full kind of, like, visor for the front half of the bridge. Yeah. It, just the level of vision and ambition that they have is is incredible. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned the other characters uh, who are on the show. Obviously, me and Paul were all in for Jank and Pog, played by Jason Manzoukas, who we're big fans of back from How Did This Get Made? Yeah. Uh, which was, like, an early uh, podcast discovery for both of us, I think, uh, back in the day. <laughs> running show. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, still still going, but I think it was... It's, you don't uh, need that, like, uh, tour money anymore. No, no, no. Yeah, no, no, doing no, quite well. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, he's now a voice actor in Big Mouth, uh, yeah. which is a big Netflix show, yeah. and also... Obviously, he played a recurring character on Brooklyn Nine-Nine as well. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he's, he's totally uh, become a star in his own right. And I, I think he's a he's a really good voice actor as well. Yeah. Very suited for a kid's TV show. I yeah. can totally imagine Jank and Pog, uh, who's a 16-year-old Tellerite, <laughs> being, like, loads of kids' favourite character in this because he's the one that seems most like a kid yeah. like I think like you you can imagine having the action figure of him mm. and like kids really like loving him wanting to be like him because he's that sort of well he's kind of mean but he says everything with like a smile on his face you can yeah. feel like Jason Mansukas is never not happy when he's doing his life yes he always has jolly delicious. Like, yeah, 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 yeah yeah despite even if he's being kind of like you say cantankerous is that he sounds kind of like how he's having a fun time all the time yeah. the so, fact yeah, that yeah. he's like always referring to himself in the third person like he's got a very set personality that I, yeah. I really like the character of Zero because it's a big, speaking about the way Star Trek continuously pushes the envelope like you think about the character of Dax from Deep Space Nine uh, as as a character that can reincarnate and can be both male and female to see a, a character like Zero who's uh, basically genderless because they're a non-corporeal entity that feels like a really nice piece of, uh, of of representation for children to understand without um, it being about necessarily signposting it or whatever it's just like oh they are they are an entity that is neither gender because they are a, 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 a ball of light inside a, a, a mechanical floating creature. But it's yeah. it's kind of a beautiful performance. And more hands, all hands are left for Murph as well. <laughs> yeah, I oh, love Murph. Yeah, yeah. Murph, co- we haven't co- talked about co- Murph. Comedy indestructible blob that yeah. is... Uh, the, the, one of the funniest moments of the entire season is in Time of Mock where the whole thing is Janeway is going yes, and, yes, all yeah. the different crew members yeah. are in different time streams but Janeway can go between them all yeah. so she has a different like scene with each uh, crew member as she tries to get them to save the day and at one point just as she really really needs help she gets transported <laughs> to the time that it's just got the like I think like and he's just and she's like oh no like oh, yeah, uh, yeah, that was yeah, yeah it was absolutely brilliant. hilarious that was really really funny and it was like when are they going to pay off Murph like you know indestructibility and then it kind of you know, swallowing the proto star 
like it's just a great it's a brilliant of, idea yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it's fantastic because I, I, it's obvious but i didn't see it coming as well <laughs> like it was just a great reveal that that's what they did yeah, yeah. and um, apparently the, the the species of murph is a online fascination and like the writers have been constantly teasing the species of murph is a species from star trek but we won't tell you what it is yet oh it's okay. apparently there's like a question mark because even dahl's species is not uh specified like yeah. there's a whole bunch of threads that are left hanging that they're going to probably pull on as they go along but like the character of murph is just so funny i think that time mark episode is definitely my favorite because that's the one you push for an emmy it's the perfect balance (laughs) of i mean it's 24 minutes long and yet it's like one of the best like science fiction time loop stories i've ever seen yeah i can't believe how much they pack into these episodes like they feel as feel as rich as a as a 48 minute episode and Mm. it's it blows my mind how well they've been able to kind of handle and it's so well constructed because it's like i mean it begins with that genius thing that that jane was on the holodeck trying to instruct them on that mental exercise of how do you get the fox the grain and the chicken over over a lake on a boat which is a classic brain teaser group exercise And, like, obviously, like, the whole episode is about them having to come together and be cohesive as a team. But I love the fact that, like, halfway through the episode, I was like, oh, my God, this is, like, the most sophisticated framing for an episode. Because, obviously, Dreadnought 3D prints himself into the ship. Mm. And so he's the fox. And the thing that they've got to build that that fixes the warp drive, the protostar drive is the grain and I, I i can't remember which one's the chicken but i but like basically there's like a you you look at it and you're like oh i get it this is this is that problem but turned into like a cool sci-fi concept yeah. and they all have to band together to do it and they have to work within these different time frames and time zones and janeway is the one just constantly saying you can do it you can do it and they they manage to have all this sophisticated uh, internal logic in there they've got thrilling stakes and lots of unexpected things that happen uh, it all fits together and works perfectly but also Janeway is hilarious in it as well. Like, I think the other thing I love mm. about Mulgrew in this is Mulgrew feels... You know how, like, when they bring back legacy characters in Star Trek so far in this new iteration, it's like, if Picard's back, we've got to give him the darkest backstory ever. We're going to show Picard really miserable. He's dying of a brain thing and his mother took her own life. And, like, writers feel like they have to, like add more darkness to a character because they f- they don't trust the audience to find that character compelling just by being that character. It's like, I want to see just Picard who went through Chain of Command. You know, he, and being yeah, assimilated. Being enough. assimilated. Like, he's like, enough. No, he's like, like, I just want to see Picard <laughs> go on a mission at his age now because the way Picard reacts to Chain of Command, it's not because he has some deep inner demons. The demons are the person torturing him. It's his, his, his battle wits with David Warner and stuff. So... With with Janeway, Mulgrew, they bring her back, but they bring her back in a way that she's able to retain her lightness because she's just hologram Janeway. Like you said, she's the idealized mm. version. She gets so to she, be motherly. She gets to be motherly, but also she, she also gets to be really fucking funny. I think my favorite line is when Dreadnought gets 3D printed onto the ship. That's a really ingenious way to get that character to get onto the ship as they send a signal to the 3D printer of the protostar. And I think my favorite line of the whole show is just Mulgrew crushing a comedic line where they find out that Dreadnought's being 3D printed and Gwyn says, it's a gift from my father. And Mulgrew just goes, can we return it? <laughs> this is a brilliant, brilliant joke. Yeah, she's great. So I think we should probably move on to Final Thoughts yeah. on the show. Dave, why don't you kick us off? As is obvious, I do adore this program. You know, obviously we talked about some of my like things that I would do differently or little nitpicks I have here and there, but all of them far exceeded by just how absolutely wondrous the rest of it is. I mean, like it, j- just the sheer amount of quality across the board from the writing to the performances, the animation, the style, 
the ensemble, the stakes. It's this like episodic story that sort of essays everything that I love about Star Trek and reminds me why I loved it. But at the same time, it has like, it does have an overarching plot, but it's a plot that it's almost like I don't need the plot necessarily. It just comes in like the shark and jaws whenever you need more stakes and, and just helps your characters get to the next bit. So even though there are things I would change about the large plot, not only do I not mind it, but I'm also excited to see where it goes because I've seen the trailer for the next one, the, the next half of season one. Oh, okay. I've seen some some great examples of exactly what you were talking about, about um, what you would have done with uh, Disco season three, which yeah. is like you see uh, uh, some hints that, you know, not only are we going to see more Starfleet, but we're going to see more of the Protostar crew trying to be Starfleet in their sector, in their quadrant where, yeah. where Federation doesn't exist. You see them trying to represent the Federation and the people and planets that might need the Federation. I've also seen that we're going to see CG animated versions of the Borg. Oh, okay. seeing the seeing the the uh, Prodigy team take on a character like the Borg. Mm. That's exciting. Considering what I've seen from them so far, it seems like the only way to go with this this concept is up. I think I've mentioned this on the thread, and so this is I, I think this is my perfect final thought, which is that it captures a quintessential. Trekness that I think has been missing in a couple of the other shows. Not to say anything against those shows, because like I actually am, uh, as 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 we get older, like I, I, there's no time in my life for arguing on the internet about who, what version of the show you want. And like I can have opinions about different shows and things that I personally don't want to see. But like I'm perfectly happy for the Star Trek brand to be flexible enough that you have an adult comedy show. Uh, animated that you have uh, a prestige show like Picard or you have a, a new show that can go in any direction like Disco or Strange New Worlds which is just like a warm nostalgic hug I'm happy for all of those things to exist and whatever Star Trek you love is your Star Trek I'm totally fine with it for me personally I think this show specifically captures something about Trek that I've just missed since the 90s since I was watching the Berman era which is that I think personally Star Trek is childlike and I, 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 you know, obviously this is a show geared towards children, but I don't mean it's childlike in that it's immature. Obviously the characters in this show are not mature, but I think that the, the more adult-leaning Star Trek shows of the modern era are more immature in their attempts to pander to some of the excesses of, of TV. Like, oh, we need to have endless action, we need to have a big old dropkick fight scene we got to hear Picard say fuck. Things that are just like, feel like they're trying too hard to get the audience to feel like this is an adult show. And Prodigy is a show that is absolutely uh, wearing its heart on its sleeve that it's for children. Yet I think in the childlike sense of wonder that it presents, actually skews so much closer to what the classic Roddenberry vision for Star Trek was. It's about opening your eyes to a larger universe, realizing the values of a utopian society and struggling and trying to get to those values, not always reaching them and, and failing and then trying again, coming back stronger and forging relationships and undoing bigotries, realizing more moral awareness of things. All of those things happen uh, um, um, happen in the show with, with young kids. It's a perfect educational tool for children. And I think in watching it, I just thought that is Star Trek for me. And I'm so glad it's here. And I just can't wait to see what else they show us. Amazing. Paul? Well, you know, watching children's TV a bit more than I usually do now <laughs> I've got a child. <laughs> I think it's, uh, you know, I'm excited to see the fantastic influence of like education within fun storytelling. Mm. From octonauts teaching you about the ocean and, and teamwork and uh, working together to solve issues and you know, problem solving to Go Jetters, which is another, another show which like introduced to ge geography and different things that happen in the world. 
everything has an element of like stem to it like where the good ones do and that's great it's in there in the writing and there's like you know kids are just bit by bit coming away with something a bit more preparing them for like what the jobs will need to be in the future and here's star trek stab at it mm. and it's for a little bit older so you know theo's a bit too young for it but i feel like this is something i could see him kind of gravitating towards because there's some heavier concepts at play here we took a time mark that's like you know you need to kind of know what you're doing Mm. You, to to enjoy episode and get that concept, it's um, I say beginners Nolan, but you know I I think this the shows I went with a lot with low expectations because I was like oh it's going to be kids it's going to be pandering it's going to be trying to be too cool it's going to be like recess Star mm. Trek you know Star Trek Star Date nine hundred two one zero but it wasn't that it was it was a lot more to it than that and I thought I was very impressed I've, I had a bit of a kind of you know hot and cold reaction to a lot of the new shows i mean <laughs> i wasn't on the picard season two episode but that was utterly dreadful <laughs> yeah. I, still haven't finished it. I think i think we did say on on the episode that you considered it to be the worst season of star trek ever which is what you said I understand, but... yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah like it genuinely is the worst and i, I think you know disco leaves me quite cold but then strange new worlds reunited the kind of interest and then this kind of like yeah it's deep and dirty first so yeah i feel like we're on an upward swing Around about now, so yeah, I think it's 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 well worth a watch, and you don't have to be ten years old to be somebody looking this up. Beautiful, um, yeah, I was really impressed by this. As I say, I think this is the bravest, boldest uh, show that they have made during the Kurtzman era of Star Trek television. Um, yeah, more so than Discovery, Picard, Lower Decks. Uh, haven't seen Strange New Worlds yet. I'm sure I'm going to love it because mm. everyone else seems to. It's very um, good. However, I think that just by its very concept, it probably can't be as quite forward-thinking as this can. So, you know, I, I really got to give credit to the Hagmans for that, uh, who are the showrunners of this show and kind of pushing things forward. And I think that's the fact that this is the first, like, children's Star Trek TV show. I think what a great thing to be able to take the opportunity to be like, well, this is a completely new audience. So, of course, we can push things forward. Mm. Yes, there is an episode which is like a love letter to the old school fans. Mm. Carl almost feels like thrown in for the adults who are watching or like the parents who are watching the kids. But in the most part, they've gone, well, this will be a new audience. Yeah. So, actually, all the fan service nostalgia stuff, chuck that out. Because it doesn't matter, because the, actually to a new audience, they won't care about any of that. Mm. So I think that's quite clever. I think animation-wise and writing-wise, uh, this is very sophisticated for a kids' TV show. I think, you know, this was reminding me of kind of, you know, the great uh, children's animated series like Batman the Animated Series, which you mentioned mm. earlier, where it's something where you feel like an adult can watch it. Well, we are all adults, so yeah. we have all watched it and we have all enjoyed this show. But you also feel like, you know, a seven-year-old could watch this and absolutely love it. Mm. Paul, you were earlier saying, like, who is this kind of for exactly? I, I think it is probably for that kind of age, I think. Probably, like, probably about seven years old. I think you're going to be really, really vibing with mm. this. But like I say, I think it is fun for the family. This is the kind of thing that a parent who loves Star Trek could watch with their kid, and they're both having a great time with it, which I think is a is a hard, difficult thing to pitch mm. correctly in your writing, in your tone, your performances. Yeah. Um, and I think they've really pulled it off here in, in doing something sophisticated enough to impress uh, adults and get them interested, in, but also accessible enough 
for kids. You hit the nail on the head with sophisticated. It's like bad kids television is too complicated. Great kids television is sophisticated. It's like yeah. the, the two get so confused a lot of the yeah. time. And I, it feels like the, um, when you get into the second season, I'm very curious to see how they adapt to bringing in, because the, there are other characters that have been brought in, Starfleet characters. They're bringing back like a fan favorite from Next Generation, which is the character of Jellico is coming back. The actor oh, yeah. of Jellico yeah, 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 is yeah, yeah. Go from, from the Chain of Command two-parts. It's the bloke from Robocop. Yeah, yeah, the guy yeah, who yeah, became yeah. like yes. a very bizarre story in Star Trek, because he's a Jellico is a character that's now been memed to death by Star Trek Twitter yeah. for no reason. It's like the character is now suddenly just like makes puns in memes and it's like for some reason Jellico has just taken off. So they brought <laughs> Jellico back in the next half of this season. I'm very curious to see whether or not the fan service feels earned. You know, you want to make sure that it doesn't become not just the show that, that, that the kids have fallen in love with. You want I me mean, like the fan in me can't wait to see Hologram Janeway have a scene with Admiral Jamie because like just just the geek in me wants to see Kate Mulgrew perform a, a scene against herself mm. like she has done in Voyager there are many moments in Voyager where Janeway meets herself from the future or meets herself from a parallel dimension or a parallel timeline or whatever mm. I know that will be like absolute fan service that I can get behind it's like oh my god that she's gonna have a great time for that scene it's gonna be a meaty scene but I just really hope that it maintains that level of quality of sincerity that, that purity that, that purity think, retaining that purity of yeah. concept of being like don't forget all these great new characters yeah. you've created and what they're doing like by all means like i think it, it's cool if you have like an episode mm. uh, or two per season where you do more stuff yeah. with the kind of classic kind of ip characters and everything like that. but for the most part yeah push continue to push forward yeah. uh with these guys adventures because actually you know what the kids who are watching this show on mm. Nickelodeon, um, I know obviously you can watch this on Paramount Plus yeah. and everything like yeah. that as well. Yeah. But you know, the kids who are watching on Nickelodeon, they're going to care about these characters because they're the ones they're going to connect with and everything yeah. like that. And so, you know, I think, yeah, push forward that idea and establishing uh, stuff. And like I said, I, I kind of think it's the... In a way, I think, actually, this is a better way to do mm. a Starfleet Academy show mm. than yeah. Starfleet Academy. In terms of, I think it's a more fun and interesting thing to do. We're having this lone crew learning how mm. to be Starfleet news without any of really official Starfleet guidance or guidelines apart yeah. from Hologram Janeway. Guardians of the Galaxy meets Starfleet Academy. Exactly, exactly. That's it. And I think those two things match really well together. Mm. And yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing a part two. This will actually return um, on Thursday, Thursday yeah. of this week. So, you know, we th this is the hottest of hot takes we've yeah. got going. Yeah, exactly. Um, this, <laughs> Did you know this show is good? <laughs> we will be able to go straight into uh, part two. And by the time you're listening to this, uh, part two of season one will already be out there or have begun to be out Will you there. be watching? From I, I will be watching. I, I, will, will, be con watching. I, I will continue. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. And uh, yeah, I will continue watching the show. Yeah. So there we go. Dave, where can we find you online? Okay, so I'm at DRumble on Twitter. If in the future Twitter still exists or hasn't been sold for parts or turned into a mockery of itself, uh, I, I will probably still be on there. Post and, musk. <laughs> and exactly. If you can if you can smell the musk, then yeah. uh, it's possible <laughs> I might not be there. But but if if all remains true and all my animation mates are still uh, there talking about animation, I will be on there. And by this point, I will probably have flooded my feed with lots of stuff about the making of Wendell and Wild. Uh, I've been... I've been chomping at the bit for many years of being restrained by the NDA to finally be able to 
drop a bunch of my storyboards, a bunch of my concept designs, and I really geek out with some of the people I, I connect with on there about how we made this film, because I'm deeply proud of the work that we did. And, you know, it, to have worked on a piece of art that's going to be seen by so many people, to work with so many incredible people, I, I can't wait to, to share it and to shout it from the rooftops. So that's probably what I will be doing, and I'll, I'll look forward to seeing you there. Uh, yeah, for the listeners, if you are big animation fans, which I assume you are listening to this episode, uh, David does do some amazing threads kind of breaking down various different animation or animated sequences um, in various kind of films and TV. Like I say, he did do a very uh, good thread on Prodigy, but also uh, you've done loads of threads on like the history of the early Disney films, yeah, which, were, back on which were fantastic yeah. when you were doing that. Uh, Dave, Dave does Disney or whatever you call it. Yeah, them. I think yeah, really yeah, Disney plus David. Yeah, yeah. Disney plus <laughs> David. But you also did like breakdowns of like the wrong trousers uh, train yes. sequence, which yeah. is obviously one of the great animated sequences in all of cinema i think it could um, be the best animated uh action sequence so there's some really really interesting stuff there so go and check out uh you can find us at spotlight pod on all social media facebook instagram and twitter uh, you can email us at spotlightpod at gmail.com which a listener did recently really uh suggesting um, that we do uh, a particular film, which I won't reveal now, mm. for our new Christmas special uh, this year. Because we actually didn't do a Christmas special last year. As we um, know, it was cancelled by the Conservatives. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we did the uh, year before, we did Batman and Robin. A freeze is coming! Uh, and we wanted to return to doing Christmas special uh, again very, very much so. So this was a welcome a suggestion for a kind of spotlight of the movies Christmas special. So we are going to do that. So if you know who you are, that you emailed in a suggestion for a Christmas special episode, <laughs> it's going to happen, baby. And it so will be, keep listening. You can listen to it this coming Christmas while we'll all be uh, by candlelight. Yes, yeah, so this is what... Well, yeah, yeah. So this is charge your phones, people. Exactly. You'll be by a roaring fire. Yeah. Get, get around your nearest oil drum. Uh, <laughs> so this is what you can do. You can actually dictate what we're doing on the show, potentially, if we like your idea. If not, we'll chuck it in the bed. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, you know, by all means, do get in contact uh, with your suggestions for the podcast because we love to hear from you. And uh, yeah, keep up to date with what we're doing on the show on all the uh, social medias. Um, so until next time, it's been great to have you on the show, David. But it is goodbye from me, Liam, and goodbye from my co-host. Goodbye. Goodbye, it's been a pleasure. Live long and prosper, Spotlighters. Mm-hmm.